We are back. We usually do obituaries in this part of the program. We got a few uh, we need to go through rather quickly. We noted a few weeks back the passing of Albert Hoffman, the discoverer of LSD-25. Uh, something I did not realize about, realize about Mr. Hoffman until I read the current issue of Rolling Stone is that uh, Hoffman also developed psilocybin. Evidently in 1958, after obtaining a large supply of magic mushrooms from Mexico and testing the results on himself, Hoffman developed psilocybin. Timothy Leary, then at Harvard, wrote to Sandoz requesting a supply of psilocybin, which he used to launch the Harvard Psychedelic Project. Anyway, I did not realize that Albert Hoffman discovered both LSD and psilocybin. We've got an article set aside to talk in the future about, uh, you know, the potential uh, reuse of psychedelics in, in medicine, and, and they do potentially have some uses, uh, but that's a topic for another day. I do want to just mention that, uh, that I did have a chance to meet Timothy Leary at a, a party in L.A. held by an ex-girlfriend. I went up to him and mentioned that, uh, that a friend of mine had seen him at UC Davis's annual picnic day. I guess it was the year before, or maybe a few years before. I noted that my friend was very impressed by the fact that Leary had noted that just as people from Europe had fled to come to America and people in America had gravitated to California, at this point in time, with, uh, with the world filled up, the place to go next was up into space. Was someone unexpected to have the guru of LSD uh, being an advocate for space exploration? But I told him that uh, that uh, my former roommate at Davis was impressed by the talk and uh, that I was impressed by the sentiment. I remember oh so well. Leary just sort of sat there in his weary way, took a drag off the cigarette, cast a glance at me, and said, "Yeah, that was the thing to say then." So I guess you can say I saw firsthand that he was indeed a bit of a snake oil salesman. Anyway, that's a follow-up part one. Follow-up part two, the passing of Philip Frere von Bosinglager was noted by us. He was one of the, uh, I think he was the last survivor of the, uh, the group of Nazi officers who attempted to assassinate Hitler with a bomb in July of 1944. Von Bosinglager was the last survivor of the plot. Uh, of the 200 conspirators, most were caught and executed. The New York Times noted that Boselager had been educated by Jesuits, but uh, didn't turn against the Nazi regime until 1942. He said it was no longer about saving the country, but about stopping the crimes. Anti-Hitler forces initially approached him to shoot both Hitler and SS chief Heinrich Himmler at close range. But when Himmler didn't show up as expected to a March 1943 meeting in which Hitler was present, the attempt was called off and the plotters opted for a bomb instead which it, sad to note, uh, put things 14 months into the future. The article noted that after the bomb went off, uh, Boselager was en route to Berlin to help overthrow the government. When he learned that Hitler was only injured, he scrambled to return to the front, barely escaping detection. One of his comrades was killed as he rode over a mine, and Boselager had to retrieve a strategic map of Berlin from the dead man's pocket, which, if found, would have exposed him. After the war, the memory of his missed opportunity haunted him. I always see Hitler 
From here to the fireplace in front of me, he once said, indicating a distance of about two feet, and think, what would have happened if you'd shot him? And follow-up part three, noting the passing of Robert Mondavi, a big name at the UC Davis campus, where the new Mondavi Center for the Performing Arts uh, was constructed based on the promise of uh, Mondavi money. It was noted that before Robert Mondavi came along, the phrase, fine domestic wine, was practically an oxymoron. But was noted by the time he died at age 94 earlier this month, not only did he produce American wines that could hold their own against the world's best, but he helped popularize wine and make it part of everyday life. His namesake firm is now a $500 million a year business and is practically synonymous with California winemaking. Apparently back in the 1940s, uh, Robert Mondavi uh, convinced his father to purchase the struggling Charles Krug Winery, which he ran with his brother Peter. But uh, evidently when, when things came to a head in a 1965 argument, Robert punched Peter twice and was then forced out of the family business, which uh, uh, necessitated him going out and purchasing a vineyard in Oakville, uh, at the southern end of the Napa Valley. To say that uh, Mondavi did well is an understatement. He took the company public in 1993 and in 2004 sold it for $1.35 billion to Constellation Brands. It was noted that among his survivors were his second wife, Margit, and his brother, Peter, with whom he reconciled after 20 years of estrangement. And finally, we'd like to note the passing of Mildred Loving. Mildred Loving and her, and her husband, Richard, uh, unintentionally made national headlines in the 1950s when it turned out they were arrested for the crime of participating in a mixed marriage. Loving was black and her husband, Richard, was white. As it was on 2 a.m. on July 11th in 1958, three policemen burst into the bedroom of Mildred and Richard Loving. One of them demanded, who's this woman you're sleeping with? Mildred Loving said, I'm his wife. Her husband, a bricklayer, pointed to their marriage certificate on the wall. That's no good here, came the reply. Because Richard was white and Mildred was part black and part Native American, their union was illegal in the Commonwealth of Virginia. The couple challenged the law as unconstitutional, and uh, nine years later, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed. In a unanimous decision in 1967, Chief Justice Earl Warren declared, under our Constitution, the freedom to marry or not to marry a person of another race resides with the individual and cannot be infringed by the state. It's amazing to note that in the wake of their arrest in 1958, uh, the judge was unsympathetic but he did promise not to imprison them if they left Virginia for 25 years, which forced the couple to spend several unhappy years in a cramped apartment in Washington, D.C. In 1964, Mildred wrote a letter to Attorney General Robert Kennedy asking if the just-passed Civil Rights Act would help them return home. In a personal reply, Bobby Kennedy said no, but he urged the couple to challenge the Virginia law. And the American Civil Liberties Union agreed to represent the Lovings, who, quote, watched their case move through the legal strata of the Virginia court system, earning one defeat after another. And, you know, Earl Warren, uh, the chief justice at that time, is a guy who uh, earned a lot of um, hatred from the Republican right wing in the 1960s uh, because he would render decisions like this one. Of course, he was only one of nine, but uh, it, it's, it's comforting to note that uh, there was a time when the court did the right thing, something that I think we can be quite a bit less sure about uh, given the current 
makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court. And speaking of Supreme Courts, let's uh, close with the fact uh, that, um, that nothing is going to help John McCain get elected this coming November. Nothing's going to help more than the decision by the California Supreme Court uh, last week to overturn Prop 22 which outlawed gay marriage in the state of California and won by a landslide. Writing in the Washington Post, E.J. Dion said, much, As much as I believe in equality for gays, I have heard that the California court has done more harm than good. Writing in the New Republic Online, Jeffrey Rosen said, You don't have to be a social conservative to see that this decision is needlessly inflammatory. California's domestic partnership law already confers all the rights of marriage withholding only the term marriage itself. Here at Radio Parallax, we agree with Jeffrey Rosen on this one. While we're not surprised to agree with the New Republic Online, we are somewhat surprised to note that we also agree with National Review Online, wherein William Duncan said in reference to this Supreme Court decision, For those of us who believe in democracy, it's a dark day indeed. Just eight years ago, 61% of the state's voters ratified Prop 22, which held that only marriage between a man and a woman is valid or recognized in California. Now, in a classic case of judicial overreach, unelected judges are again legislating morality from the bench and thwarting the people's will. And finally, writing in the Boston Globe, Boston, of course, being the state of Massachusetts where gay marriage is legal, Jeff Jacoby said, 22 states have amended their constitutions to ban gay marriage. It's why more than a million Californians have already responded to the court's ruling by signing a ballot initiative to limit marriage to heterosexual couples. Next November, voters will almost certainly override the court's presumptuous diktat. We don't think that, uh, you know, California is going to be swung into the McCain column on the basis of uh, people turning out to vote for that ballot initiative. But ladies and gentlemen, it's not going to help the Democrats one bit, not only in California, but in numerous other critical states. Now, Barack Obama just said in the, uh, two days ago that he's planning to challenge uh, John McCain in various western states. And it is in states like Nevada, Colorado, and New Mexico in the west along with states like Wisconsin, Iowa, Missouri, Ohio, Virginia, New Hampshire, and Florida in the East that are going to determine who the next president is going to be. And again, California's domestic partnership law already confers all the rights of marriage, withholding only the term itself. That apparently is not enough for some people. So they're intent upon rattling the cage of all the religious fundamentalists and conservatives who want to make this their issue. This is not a smart move in an election year. And I think that's about all we're going to say on that topic and about all we're going to say in today's show because we are out of time. Our thanks to Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society and, of course, our old pal, Will Durst. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.
cosa 